Amazing. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, let's pray to begin. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present among us this evening. Would you give us ears and eyes and hearts that are open to all you want to show us? We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, so I've been thinking about um, our series so far, our series uh, on the creed, um, and I don't know if this will surprise one or two of you. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, I don't know. Um, but I've, I really have given this a lot of thought, and I've come to quite a striking conclusion, uh, and that is uh, that Christianity um, is a bit pointless, Unless, unless Jesus died and came back to life and then went to heaven and then returned to us. Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and return have to have happened and have cosmic significance. Otherwise, we and the 2.5 and a bit billion other Christians around the world are just wasting our time and are utterly deluded and part of the biggest and, quite frankly, most impossible deception the world has ever known. The claim that Jesus died and rose again and came back to life to appear to a number of people to prove that he'd come back to life is by ordinary human standards ridiculous. It's outrageous. It's shocking. And to some people, it's even offensive. But that's the claim of Christianity and the claim of the person of Jesus and part of this statement of faith that we began looking at a few weeks ago. And in the verses we heard Jenny just read for us, um, they're from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he's writing to them because they're struggling. He'd actually established this particular church on his second visit there. Um, but now, all around it were people who were corrupt and dishonest. Uh, and this church, they weren't sure how to live out their faith with integrity. The culture all around them was totally immoral, and they were right in the thick of it. They knew that believing in Jesus meant freedom, but what did that actually look like? How were they to respond to the pressing issues of their day? How should they view marriage, for example, women in church, issues around sexuality and the gift of the Holy Spirit? in light of what they now believed. Well, Paul literally could be writing us an email today or sending us a TikTok. Or I, I don't know if you... Can you send those? I don't know. <laughs> I've never done one. Um, but if you could send them, he'd probably say... He could be doing that today because it's so relevant to us right now. We live in a world and a culture that says, well, you do you, boo. Like, it's... I know, I can't pull it off. I tried. <laughs> it says, you do you. It says, you live your truth because your truth is the only one that kind of really matters. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be people of integrity in how we behave. Of course we should. But it's more than that. The way we live our lives, the things we put our trust in, 
the things that we believe that we hear, we're here for, if we believe we're here for anything, and, and what we believe our identity and our purpose is, if we even believe we have one. You know, it's really hard to live your truth, to live your best life in isolation from anyone else, because you're always going to affect somebody. I mean, for one thing, we live on a planet with 7.8 billion other humans, and so chances are you're going to encounter one before too long. As you start living your truth, the way that you believe is right, acting in a way that you believe to be morally upright or honest or good, sooner or later, you're going to smack into someone else who's trying to do the same thing. And sometimes that'll be fine. You'll be like, oh, great, like we think the same thing, this is wonderful, let's be like BFFs, let's be friends. Um, but quite often, you'll come across someone in your life, and it could be a friend, it could be a family member, a fellow student, a, colli- a colleague, a boss, a lecturer, a politician, who lives their life contrary to the way you live yours, in seemingly insignificant ways, as well as pretty major ones. And, and you, you can ignore them, But you will come across someone else with an opposite view and set of life values to you, and you'll be back to square one. Or you could try and make sure that you only surround yourselves and interact with people who think exactly the same as you on everything, all of the time, which I'd suggest is fairly impossible, quite boring, and certainly not life in all its fullness. And so you have a choice. Will you keep to an individualistic set of values and morals and a worldview that suggests my world is me? Or will you allow yourself to be challenged by the audacious claim of Christianity, which is that there is a creator in God who sent his son Jesus to die and rise again so that we could enjoy life in all its fullness, enjoy a life of purpose and of value and a life where our identity isn't based on what we wear or say or eat or where we come from or the colour of our skin or the part of the world that we were born in. Can you begin to grasp that your identity is as a child of the living and risen Jesus Christ. That there is so much more to life than that which you see. And that there is an eternal, forever perspective to all of this, which changes everything for all of us, for all time. And so how how might we do that, or do that more deeply? Well, we're going to think about it in three ways. Face facts, have humility, and rediscover the resurrection. And so firstly, face facts. The person of Jesus is a historical fact. And we could do a whole series on this, but the truth is that we've got more texts that relate to or talk directly about the person of Jesus than we do of some accounts of some well-known Roman emperors. And Paul assures us that in our verses this evening that more than 500 people saw Jesus after his horrific death on the cross. And many, many billions of people across the planet today have a living faith in him, which seems bizarre at best if he never actually existed and did the things that he said he did, if people didn't actually have an experience of him. 
And Paul himself said that Jesus appeared to him. And this was the same Paul that used to be an enemy of the church and persecuted those who professed a faith. And the encouragement for us all here is that Jesus didn't leave him out. And he'll never leave out the lost and the last and the least in our society and in our world today. And he won't ever leave you out if you choose a life laid with him. But it was, and still is, quite understandably, a bit of a problem for people to get their heads around. The church in Corinth was at the heart of Greek culture. And in Greek culture, most people didn't believe that people's bodies would be resurrected after death. They saw the afterlife as something that only happened to the soul. And in contrast, Christianity says that the body is kind of still a a thing. We'll be physical people when we get to heaven, as well as people with a soul. And so Jesus challenges our culture and embodies the eternal. He says that this life isn't all there is. Death hasn't won, it's lost. Evil won't triumph because Jesus has. But you'd be forgiven for looking around at the state of the world right now and thinking, well, you know what, it feels like there's just no hope. And so I just want to encourage you this evening because there is hope and his name is Jesus. And so why not give it all to him as he's given it all for us? And secondly, let's have humility. Let's realize that it's not all about me. The author Tim Keller wrote, humility is so shy. If you begin talking about it, it leaves. Well, I'm hoping that won't be the case this evening, but humility, having the right view of ourselves, is so important in understanding God's view of us. Jesus entered the world to redeem it and to redeem us, to make everything right. He entered into the world humbly as one of us. He entered into human history and experienced the full force of its violence and pain. And because of that, he knows our journeys of suffering and weariness and pain and uncertainty. Jesus is our assurance that God stands with us through it all. How? Because Jesus was fully human and is fully God, and so he's the most complete and trustworthy picture of God that we have. He's our window to God's character and God's nature. He takes us to God in order that we might know him better. And I'm not sure of a more humbling thought than that, that we can meet God through Jesus, through his victory over death, and through a relationship with him today. And so, finally, let's rediscover the resurrection. As I mentioned, in in Greek culture and in our culture today, the notion of bodily resurrection was and is for many, something from the realm of complete fantasy. It just doesn't happen, except maybe in Doctor Who or superhero movies. It just doesn't happen. 
But there is a place for the historical person of Jesus alongside the divine person of Jesus. The one who offers us freedom, fullness of life, and fresh identity. If Jesus' death was the end, enjoying the here and now would be all that mattered. But there is the offer of life in all its fullness available now. And there's also the offer of life beyond the grave. And Jesus made sure that we knew it. You see, Jesus used the customs and the culture of his time to teach parables, to spread his message, and to prove his divinity and his return to earth again. Um, In John, John chapter 20, verse 7, it tells us that the napkin that was placed over the face of Jesus in his tomb was not just thrown aside like the other grave clothes. The Bible takes an entire verse to tell us that it was neatly folded and placed at the head of the stony coffin. So why did Jesus fold the linen burial cloth after his resurrection? Well, early on the Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and she found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and I don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb to see. The other disciple outran uh, outran Peter and got there first. He looked in and saw the linen cloth lying there. But he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter arrived and he went inside. And he noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying to the side. So what? Why is this seemingly insignificant detail so important? Well, in order to understand its significance, we need to understand a little bit about Hebrew tradition of the day. The folded napkin had to do with master and servant, and every Jewish boy would have known this particular tradition. When the servant set the dinner table for his master, he made sure that it was exactly the way the master wanted it, and it was furnished perfectly. And then the servant would wait out of sight until the master had finished eating. And the servant would dare not touch the table until the master had finished. And now if the master had finished eating, he would get up from the table, he'd wipe his fingers and his mouth as you do, clean his beard, screw up the napkin and put it on the table. The servant would then know that it was time to clear up. In those days, the screwed up napkin meant, I'm finished. But if the master got up from the table, folded his napkin and laid it beside his plate. The servant wouldn't touch the table because the folded napkin meant, I'm coming back. Jesus died, came back to life, went up to heaven and returned, and he will return again. And he left us a message. Jesus is not finished. He let the world know with a simple humble piece of cloth that he was coming back and he wasn't done. Not with you, not with me, 
and not this earth, not yet. He is coming back, and he's chosen to use you and me to bring about his plans and his kingdom on earth.